Last week we kicked this thing off, and uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 are very familiar to us as Lutherans because we talk about we're saved by grace, right? Um, but there's a section of that little verse that a lot of people miss, and it talks about uh, the one who is the prince of the power of the air, okay? And the word in Greek that's used for air is uranos, which means atmospheres. And uh, this has always been very intriguing to me uh, because he's talking about the devil. Who is the prince of the power of the Uranos, this, this world, this cosmos? Well, he calls himself the prince, right? Prince of darkness. But this is very, very interesting to me. I've tracked this over all of my years of ministry. Weather events, bad weather events, very consistently, it's not always true, but very consistently, it's interesting to me to find that they will fall on a Saturday night. And so last week, guess what we had? Like four below zero and ice on the streets. And I'm like, great, we get to kick off the Revelation study today. <laughs> um, the prince of the power of the Uranus is at work. But um, if you weren't here, what we're trying to do is just kind of set the stage so you know how to read the book of Revelation. And the revelation starts with these words. You read them in your English. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you read over it that fast. And you don't even think about it. When you read it in, in a Greek Bible, it starts off this way. It says the Apocalypsis Jesu Christus. Okay? So I always tell people, stop right there. Don't go any further. Notice what the author is telling you. He's giving you a clue about how to read this book. Apocalypsis, the word that we translate as revelation, really refers to a very specific type of literature. All right? So what the author is trying to signal to us is, I want you to read this book in a very particular way because it is an apocalyptic book. It follows the rules of apocalyptic literature. We talked a little bit about those rules. Some of those rules include when you read apocalyptic literature, you're going to, you're going to have to pay attention to symbols and numbers because... Apocalyptic literature is meant to be symbolic. That, that's how it's meant to, to read. If you try to turn the symbols of Revelation into, into literal people or literal creatures, okay, uh, and try to pinpoint them in history, you, you probably will mess up the book. Okay, because it's not meant to be read that way. The symbols symbolize, yes, they do symbolize a lot of different people and a lot of different things that are going to happen over a specific period of time. Uh, Revelation deals with a time frame that starts when Jesus Christ first comes into the world and that concludes with his return. That's the time frame that we're looking at. Okay? So during that time frame, all the different symbols that we read in the book will refer to different people and different kinds of things that are going on in the world all the way up until the end. Okay? I, I don't know about you. I thought about that this week. You turn on your television. Really good news this week, right? Coming out of Paris. Scare you? Does me, right? I mean, that's the intention of it is to scare us. That you can have people who are saying, we're going to come into the streets of America with swords and cut people's head off. Could they do that? They could, right? And so you start thinking about well, what kind of a time are we living in that people would do that? Well, we're living in the time that's described here. Are those folks that are doing that described in the book of Revelation? Absolutely. Okay. But how are they described? Through a symbol 
that covers not only what's going on today, but it goes all the way back to when this book was written and it goes all the way forward to when Jesus Christ will return. So point being, read the symbols, read the, the numbers of the book of Revelation, understand what they are. They're meant to re represent real people, events, things that are going to happen over an extended period of time. Okay? Second thing we said as far as a roadmap, if you try to read the book of Revelation like you read an American novel, a Western novel, you'll really get messed up because we, we read novels today and they're linear and that's how we as, as Westerners think, right? You have a beginning and a middle and an end. And the, you know, the beginning kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen. Here's the problem or here's the incident. And then we get to the middle and everything gets even worse. And then we finally get to the end and everybody's happy. Most of the time, right? Okay. Well, if you try to read the book of Revelation that way, you will be so lost. Here's why. The world ends several times in the book of Revelation. And so you, the world will end on you and you'll be like, wait a minute, it can't end. We're not even at the beginning. We're not even through the book, right? So how does it work? Well, it works in a, in a way that, that's representative of what we're going to call Hebrew literature. Okay? So how does a Hebrew person think? How does a Jewish person think? They don't think in linear terms. They think what? Circularly. Right? Ever get into an argument with a rabbi and feel like you're spinning around in circles? It's because that's how rabbis think. They talk in circles. They take a subject, put it in the middle of the room, and walk around it. And they describe it from this angle. Now they describe it from this angle. Now they describe it from this angle. So you're always getting a picture of the subject in a, in, from a different angle. When you add it all up, it's additive. When you add it all up, you go, oh, I can see it very well now. Revelation really works that way. We're going to have three sevenfold cycles. And we'll kind of walk around the subject. What's the subject? Jesus Christ, who made you for himself, who is coming to the world to what? To restore it. And the restoration began with his death and resurrection on the cross. When will it end? When he comes again. And what will he do? He will restore his creation. I mean, that's the subject. So when we put that subject in the middle of the room, we're going to walk around it three times. And each time you're going to learn something new. You're going to go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Okay. So that's kind of the main body of the book of Revelation. Where we're at today is, is actually just in the very beginning of it. We're looking at what's called the introduction. The introduction is very straightforward. It's the section of Revelation that most people can read, right? <laughs> Without going, woo, what's that? Uh, so let's kind of dig back into that this morning, uh, beginning with the question, who, who wrote this book? Who wrote this book? Duh. Look at the first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it know by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even uh, to all that he uh, saw. Who wrote the book of Revelation? All right, John. Uh, everybody agrees with that, right? Not hardly. This is kind of interesting because I, I want to be aware that you guys are going to go out into to, to bookstores and even, even in high V, looking at a magazine rack. And I can guarantee you that you're going to find uh, books, magazines, uh, articles on the book of Revelation. You're going to find them, right? Uh, you're going to turn on your televisions, and one night you're going to be watching television, and you'll hit the Discovery Channel, 
and there'll be a, a special on the book of Revelation. Okay. Most of what you're going to read in magazines, books, television specials, would deny John as its author. Most of it throw John out. Okay. The question that our, our academic world asks when it comes to scripture is, did one person write this book or was this book a product of the Christian community written by various authors and edited over the course of an extended period of time? Thus us not even being able to know who wrote it or if the words in it are actually representative of historical or factual events. That's academic America today, right? Um, it is so bad, I'm, I'm just being honest with you, I'm so bad, when, when, when I started to go down the road of, of getting a doctorate, okay, I called a number of different universities, Duke, Notre Dame, I just kind of wanted to know where do you come from? Notre Dame, Catholic University, asked me this question as I was interviewing them on the phone. They are interviewing me on the phone for their program. They asked me this question. Are you actually a believer? I said, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm not making this up. True story. This is their seminary. They said, it would be interesting to have a believer in our class. Okay. Academic America, where our kids go off to college, all right, what starts to happen is everything you learn in Sunday school gets dissected. And all of a sudden you listen to a PhD and the PhD is calling into question things like, who is the author of this book? Duh, John, not so fast. And all of a sudden academics are taking it apart and saying, well, no, we, we don't think that John wrote this. We think it's, his name is put on it, but it's pseudepigraphal. It's not actually his work. It's the work of a variety of authors over an extended period of time. Where I'm going to come from, so you guys know this plainly and clearly, I absolutely accept the authorship of John. Which John? John the baptizer? Nope. John the elder, who comes later in history? Some people say, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's just one of the church fathers. Nope. Who? John the apostle. Why, why do we say that? Um, going back to about 130 A.D., uh, you, you can find you can really find some interesting stuff in historical writings. Okay, some some of the writings that we have that kind of help us understand uh, how this book of the Bible was being used in the early church come from the church fathers. Okay, how many of you know this this name, Irenaeus? You recognize that name, Irenaeus? Okay, um, yeah, you do. Uh, if you ever go to a Greek Orthodox church. Fascinating to go to. I, I love I love their church services. You sit down, and you look up typically at this great dome, and Orthodox the Orthodox um, love to to have icons, paintings, right? So you look up. The last Orthodox church I went to, I look up, and there's this uh, this picture of God, and it says Pantocrator, the Creator of all things, right? And then circling God are these people with these long beards and scowls on their faces, right? And so you look at that and you're like, it's ZZ Top. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not ZZ Top. All of these guys circling them are, are called the church fathers, right? They're the, they're the saints of the Orthodox Church. What it means is that going way back in history, the church has said there's various individuals who uh, wrote and 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 preached and taught within the church. And um, 
were revered by the church. Okay? Their writings are not to be put on the same pedestal as scripture, but they're, but they're helpful. When you go back to 131 AD and you pick up some of the writings of one of those church fathers, Irenaeus, he talks about who wrote the book of Revelation. John, the apostle. Right? And he places it within a historical setting. When was the book written? This is important. I want to keep this in mind throughout, throughout our journey together. So Irenaeus says that... that John the author writes this during the period in which Domitian is the emperor of Rome. All right? so, so think about it. Jesus Christ dies when he's 33 years old. All right? So kind of add up history, right? We're, we're about 100 years past that now. And Irenaeus, the church father, is saying, here's how this book is being used in the church today. We're recognizing that John the apostle wrote this for our good, and he wrote it during the period of time that Domitian reigned, which would have been somewhere between 81 and 96 AD. Think about your Roman emperors. Think about what that means. Okay? Most of you know these names. Caligula. Yes? Nero. Everybody know Nero? Hard not to know Nero. The man was crazy. Literally insane. Okay? Come, coming after Nero is Domitian. Now, the kind of persecution that's going in the church that starts already pre-Caligula is, is bad. It's, it's the Romans coming in saying, we're going to disrupt this now illegitimate religion. Because in Rome, you had two things going on. You had religio licita or illicita, and then you had superstitio. The first one, religio uh, licita or elicita meant that the Romans would say, we are going to authorize you to, to have your particular religious belief in our culture as long as you do what? Recognize Rome as your authority. You can do anything you want. We really don't care. Whatever religion you guys want to have, have it. But you've got to recognize Rome as, as your authority. When, when a body of people began to act in such a way that the, that the Romans felt like they were no longer recognizing the authority of Rome, then that religion became illicit, illegal. You can't have that religion anymore. Okay? Uh, I, th I think of China today. Right? Um, China today is a, is, a, is a very interesting study because for years... You know, they said, you can't have Bibles. You can't have church. And uh, the only churches that they allowed to operate in China were expatriate churches, right? And an expatriate church, what happens is a Chinese person can't come into it. They can't walk into it. It's illegal for them to. Okay? And it is illegal for you as a church member to go out and proselytize. You'll be arrested. You'll be put in jail. So what happens is that drove the church underground, Right? And what began to happen is Christianity began to spread like never before in China. And the government discovered that. And guess what they said? Whoops, we made a big mistake. And so in China today, what they've done is they said, let's get that underground church and let's bring it above ground. But we've got to authorize what you do. Okay? And so uh, there are more and more churches, Christian churches in China, 
uh, today than, than ever before. And when you drive around, you're like, hey, there's a Christian church, there's a Christian church, there's a Christian church. There is one new church um, that just got started uh, where, the, where the Chinese government actually is buying the building and supporting the pastor, okay, who happens to have, have been one of my colleagues in Dallas. And uh, so they're trying experimentally in Shenzhen, China, to see if they can control a church above ground. It's the first Chinese church that they're actually allowing not only expats to go into, but Chinese people to go into. Now, my buddy, can he stand up? Can he stand up and can he talk about abortion? Nope. Why? You get one child. That's exactly right. You get one child, Steve. And if you have two children, your second child, you have to you have to abort, right? So if he were to say, "Hey, the Word of God here says that abortion is something that is outside of the will of God," guess what you just did? You just got yourself in jail. All right. That picture, I want you to just kind of put back over in, into the period in which Revelation is being is being taught. Right. It has gone from from Caligula and Nero where they're hauling people out of their houses to Domitian. And Domitian between 81 and 96, this is where when you go to Rome and you look at the Colosseum, right, and you, you think about what went on in that, the blood spilt on the ground, all that's happening at the time of Domitian. Okay? So when the Revelation is being written, John is the last surviving apostle. And the rest are dead. He's the last guy. Okay? He has served as a bishop in Ephesus for many years. He is, now, he is now at the end of his life, and God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you this revelation, John, so that you can show people what is to occur uh, uh, till the very end. Okay. Um, Irenaeus also suggests that uh, by the time of Trajan, which is 98 to 117, he says you still find John alive at that time. He dies actually very old. Uh, uh, John does. Um, so we're, we're listening to a guy who's in the last part of his life who God has come to and has said, during this horrible time, I mean, we think, I, I do, you think about a sword cutting off a head. But that was the way of life every single day for Christians is, I could die today because of my faith. And you've got to get that in your mind. And I want you to get in your mind for a reason because as you start to read the Revelation, what you begin to realize is that there will come a point in history again where I think even in the West we will experience greater and greater forms of persecution. Question, is there persecution going on today? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I had members uh, of the congregation in, in the Dallas area who were shocked to learn that right, right in the Bible Belt, okay, there, there are now cases where a Christian family has a Bible class in their home, a small group in their home, where the police have come and shut it down. Now, you know how they shut it down? They use the law. And what they'll say to you is, you are now conducting a religious service in a home without a license. You don't have a permit to do it. So until you're permitted, we're shutting you down. That's in the Bible Belt. Okay? So is persecution happening today in America? Absolutely. Will, will it continue and increase? By the time you got to Domitian, there's no question about the level of persecution. You read the Revelation, and what you'll discover is 
for you and I to be Christians in our culture today means you, you, will, pay, you will pay a price, right? And so why is the book uh, being written? Well, let's go, let's go to these next words. I think they're just, I actually think they're just beautiful words. So, um, let's just continue middle, middle of, uh, of, of verse 1 and following. It says, He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. Now, notice the tense in these next verbs. Who bore witness to the word of God. What's our tense there? Who bore witness to the testimony of God. What's the tense? Past tense, right? It's a past tense. In the Greek, the verb there is past ongoing. All right? So it's not like, well, one time, a long time ago, you bore witness to God, but it is, this is a man. Why, does God, why is God coming to John? Because this is a man who stood up for his beliefs and bore witness to Jesus Christ and has never backed down, right? And so I'm going to come through John to speak to the church. Why? Because during periods of persecution, what, what does the church tend to do? Figure out ways to blend in. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to get in trouble, right? Question for you now. Don't answer this, but I want you to think deeply about it. Is it not true that sometimes today... The church, us, we try to kind of blend in to culture. We want to fit. Listen to me. There is nothing, just listen to me, there is absolutely nothing about following Jesus Christ that will ever allow you to blend into this culture. There's nothing about it. If I'm blending into culture, if I feel like culture, that I get red flags all over the place. I'm like, wait a minute, Luke, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because the, our whole life as followers of Jesus Christ should stand out like a thumb in a culture that has abandoned, has really abandoned the roots that made up this country. It's abandoned it, right? So what John, what he's saying is um, this John uh, is receiving this testimony. Who is he? He's the apostle who bore witness and who has absolutely never backed down not one minute uh, from giving testimony to Jesus Christ. He won't do it, right? Uh, and then it adds, even to all that he saw. Important because as you're identifying the author of, of Revelation as John, what, you're, what we're saying is that John is giving testimony to something that he experienced himself firsthand, right? Uh, he's not a person that's writing later. He's not, uh, as a lot of the academics say, He's not an editor. He's a person who experienced and walked with Jesus Christ and to the very end of his life said, I will bear testimony to the one who loves me uh, the most. I was thinking about that this week um, and, and excuse the diversion for a minute, but I was thinking about who John was. And uh, there's these various scenes in the Bible that kind of define him. Remember that John, uh, when he writes his gospel, never refers to himself. Never, never does, except with a phrase. And the, one, the phrase that he uses in the gospel is um, the one who loved Jesus, right? Uh, John is the one who won the foot race when Jesus died and we're going to take off and we're going to run to the tomb because the women have come with the news. He wins the foot, 
foot race, but he doesn't go in first. Right? <coughs> he simply identifies himself as the one, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who loves Jesus are the words that he, he uses. I was thinking about this scene in Acts, okay? Uh, just kind of a cross-reference cross scene. Um, Acts chapter uh, 4, uh, 1 to 13. Just, just flip over there for a minute with me. Who is John? Why, is John? why does it say he bore witness? Why does it say that, that he bore witness? Well, look at this scene in Acts. I, I, this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. This is younger John, right? Before the Revelation is ever written, and you kind of see what he's doing. See if, see, if this doesn't, see if this doesn't feel right to us today as we look at where, where America is going. Remember what happens is in, in chapter 3 of Acts, uh, the first miracle in the book of Acts takes place and, and John and Peter are involved in healing this man who was a paralytic. He's on a, on a pad uh, at the temple. And uh, all of a sudden, this guy who was a paralytic who couldn't walk for all of his life has now become what I like to call the, the jumping bean dude, right? Because he's just jumping. He's like, not only can I walk, he's leaping. He's like, Jesus, Jesus. Well, imagine that's kind of bad, bad for business in the temple. You understand what I'm saying? If you're selling guilt and law and come to us and we're the only ones who can fix it, and you got this guy going, look at me, I can walk now. Jesus, and you're the guy who actually killed Jesus? It's very bad for your business. Amen? Right? You do not want a jumping bean guy going at it. So they do their little investigation, like, who did this? Those guys. There's John and Peter standing there. So they call them in, right? And that's the scene that you get here. Just, just giving you a taste of who John is. Look, just look at these words. I'll move through them fairly fast. It says, As they were speaking to the temple, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them. This is like, <laughs> this is like overkill, right? We're going to get these guys, send in the army, get the chief, get the Sadducees, get them, bring them in. Okay? Verse 2 says, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Well, duh. That's what Revelation says John does. He bears witness to Jesus Christ. Never will back down. Verse 3, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day for it was evening. But many of those who heard believed. I always think about that. In my life, I don't know that persecution will ever get this bad. Maybe it will. But if I had to die speaking the name of Jesus and it brought one more person into eternity, take my life. Gladly give it for just one. right? And so the thing that you've got is, John, that's who John is, is to my very last breath, I will proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who healed this man Jesus Christ did, and guess what? It's not just about jumping up and down. It's about living for the rest of your life with God. And I will not back down from that. Remember what happens. I'm going to skip down uh, just a little bit. Um, go, to, go to verse 13. It says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Greatest honor in my life. I hope you'd say the same thing. Remember Stephen Covey when he writes his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Remember what he starts off with? 
First scene he gives you? A coffin. And you're in it. Stephen Covey asks the question, he says, you've got all your friends standing around your, your coffin and they're looking into it. What are they saying about you? To me, the greatest honor in the world would be for people to look in that coffin and say, and we recognize this one as having been with Jesus Christ. Greatest honor in the world. I don't care about degrees. I don't care about job. I don't care about what you own, don't own. Nothing. Does any of that matter to me? Not a drop. Here's what matters. I recognize this one as having been with Jesus Christ. You're living with him. I see it in you. I hear it in your voice. I hear it in the way that you live. I see it. That's what they're saying about John and Peter. Are they educated? No. Are they trained? No. But guess what they're doing? Go up to the verse right before it and just look at it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven that has been given among men, which by we must be saved. And I want you to just, if you have your own Bible, just circle that word, must. It's the word day, D-E-I in Greek, and it is so significant. Here's what he's saying. He's standing in the temple. And the temple is saying, the only way for you to be saved is you come to us. We'll do these sacrifices for you. And then maybe we'll say to you something like, well, we hope that God will forgive you of your sin. Sinner. That's the temple. They're standing right in that same spot saying, no, 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 no. You, that will not save you. That will kill you. The law will destroy you. There's only one name by which you must be saved. He's saying that not only to the people present, but he's speaking actually to his captors. To the people that, he, that are going to try to kill them. And he's saying, you must hear this name. There's no, nothing else that can save you. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's, that's the heart of, of John. Uh, so when you go, go back over to the Revelation, when you look at this, what's being described here is, this is his servant, his slave, John, who to his last breath gives testimony to all that he has, has, has experienced and seen in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he then just kind of states, and we looked at this last week, he just kind of states, why, why is this, why is this uh, revelation being given? Because God wants to bless you through it. Okay. By the way, you know what, you know what the word um, blessed is in, in Greek? It's kind of an interesting word. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. You know what the word blessed is? This is kind of interesting. Makarios. What does it mean? Um, a lot of time I'm talking to Christians. And I'll say, how are you doing? They're like, I'm blessed. In Texas, I, people say, I'm so blessed. If I were twins, I, I, don't, I couldn't have better, better life. I'd be like, really? Seriously? Okay. What does that mean to you? I'm blessed. Translated into the Western culture, what does it mean? Things are good in my life right now. Got my taxes paid. Pay my house on time. Eat. Not, nothing even close to what's meant. Okay. Um, any of you guys old enough to remember Robert Schuller? My pastor loved Robert Schuller. I mean, those two guys would get together and chat and talk and that kind of stuff. One of, one of the most frustrating books that Robert Schuller ever wrote, in my opinion, was a book on the Beatitudes. 
Because that's where this word shows up, isn't it? When Jesus gets on that hill and he starts talking about blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, here's what Robert Shirley did. He turned that thing into a travesty. He wrote a book called The Be Happy Attitudes. Just be happy. Not that any preachers do that today. Friends, friends, isn't it a lovely day? I looked up today and I saw the sky and I saw a black cloud and I said, go away, black cloud. Go away. Because God wants us to be happy. Right. Not, that you, not that that calls to mind any preachers in America today. Um, Lord, forgive me. This is not about being happy. Blessed is not about being happy. There's a d deeper sense in it. What he's saying is, you, you will experience joy and you will experience peace in the midst of this. What God wants you to have is not, he's not going to take away all your troubles. He's not going to just eliminate all the things that are going on in your life. Guess what? Actually, God uses persecution. He uses hard stuff in our life. But in the midst of it, when my life is at the lowest low and everything looks rotten, here's what I can say. I have peace. And I have joy. When the world is saying, there's no way you can have joy. Yes, I do. And God gives it to me through Jesus Christ. And he's saying, if you will read the words of this book and keep them, not just hear them and blah, 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 but keep them. Here's what God will give you. Peace and joy, a depth of it, not just happy stuff the joy that's able to sustain you through the worst of times because guess what? The time is near. That's how this very first sentence ends. The time is near. What time? I, I don't know if we think about this. I do all the time. Every single time you pray the Lord's Prayer and you say... Our Father, and God goes, yes. And you say, I've got some things I'd like to ask of you. Okay. Your kingdom come. Here's what you're saying. Right now, right here, we're in the heavens, come. Right now. I usually ask my confirmation students, I'm like, do you seriously want Jesus Christ to come like right now? Most of them are like, um, maybe tomorrow? <laughs> I'm like, stop praying the Lord's Prayer. Don't pray that thing or skip over that petition because here's what you're actually saying is, come, all right? And, and guess what? You, want, you will want it to come. Part of that blessed is you get to this place in your life where you're able to say, no, thy kingdom come. I really do want you to come right this minute. I guarantee you that the people living during the period of Domitian, Trajan, who've lived through Nero and Caligula, they're like, we want them to come. We want you to come, God. Would you come now? Come quickly. And so that's what he's saying is, okay, John, the one who bear, bore testimony, who to his last breath stands up for Jesus Christ, is now going to show you what will come because guess what? It's, it's near. Right? So when any, whenever anybody asks me, Pastor, do you think the, the end is near? I'm like, well, I don't have to think about it. It's nothing to think about. It's right in the Bible. It just says it. The end is near. How long have we been saying that in America? When the Great World War was going on, were we saying that? Absolutely, right? We're still saying it today. In God's time clock, right? Guess what? It's 
it's that fast. And so what we're doing is we're living through history, and we're, there's nothing new under the sun. And the Revelation just describes, the, here's the period of time that you're in. I'm going to put, put these words into your ears. You're going to hear them again, and they'll come back to you. You probably won't understand right this time. But when the Revelation is written, John will repeatedly say this. He'll say, there's a time and a time and a half time. Okay. That's a trinity of times. And he says, there's a time and a time and a half a time. Okay. There's a time before Revelation. Okay. That whole period of time up to the, up to the coming of Jesus Christ. And there's a time since Jesus Christ has returned. We're in it right now. And there's a half a time. At the very end of this period that we're in, there will occur such a disruption of life globally that you will not want to be alive. And we'll come back to that throughout the Revelation. It gives us this theme that, that says, for the sake of the elect, those who are still alive and living on planet Earth during that period of time that it refers to as the half a time. It says, for the sake of the elect, God says, I'll cut it short. I'll come. But I will promise you, you do not want to be, you will not want to be alive. You may be alive, but you will not want to be alive during that half a time. And so time is near. And so what he's talking about and these epochs pre, now we're right in the middle of the Advent epoch. There will come an end that will be severe. All right? All right, let's, let's jump forward just a little bit to verse 4. Uh, if in your Bibles there may be a superscription, right, that's written over it. So it says, greeting to the seven churches. Just read verse 4. Okay, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Question for you. Who, who, is this, who is this book being written for? To the seven churches who are in Asia. Who's it being written for? The church, right? Okay. Seven churches? Is that right? Being written to seven churches? Grace to you, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Is it being written to seven churches? Is that right? No, it's not right. Why is it not right? What did I tell you? Map. How do you read numbers? Symbolically, right? So when I say these seven churches, uh, seven happens to be, if you remember this from last time, I'll repeat it over and over so you'll get sick of it, but seven happens to be what? The number of Jesus Christ. And the way that you get there numerolo numerologically is you have the four corners of the earth and you have the Trinity. And when the Trinity comes into the earth, you have Jesus' number. That's who comes into the earth. And consistently, from the Old Testament all the way to the very end of the Bible, there's your Jesus number. So when John says, I'm writing this letter to the seven churches that are in Asia, who is he really writing it to? To all of the churches that what? That profess Jesus Christ as Lord. He's writing it to all the Jesus followers. And in fact, uh, that's exactly what will happen is this, this, this book will get scrolled, right? And it will be sent out and it will actually make its way throughout the churches in Asia. What did the church look like in Asia at that time? Was it traditional or contemporary? Blended. It was blended, all right. I call your service here the splendid blended service. I'm like, what is that thing? I'm talking to Ted the other day. I'm like, what? Tell me again what that thing is. I don't think he could, but we try. Um, anyway, the, no, the church didn't look like a building. You didn't have buildings. What did you have? 
you're you're still you're still right you're still right in this the, the end of the first century. So what did it look like? We're post diaspora, right? The dispersion of the church that happens through this persecution. Okay. So what's happened is the church is centralized in Jerusalem. And then come, along comes Rome and begins this persecution like this. Kaboom. And what does the church do? Scatters out. Okay. Remember when, when at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says, I want you to go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Samaria, Judea, the ends of the earth. Guess what's happening? Out we go. And guess what? By the time this book is being written, now the church looks a little bit more like that underground church in China. It's spreading rapidly from home to home. Okay? What happens is, if you're part of the church, and I, I, I still I think probably one of, the, one of the best and worst things that's ever happened historically happens in the third century with the, with the conversion of Constantine. And the church changes at that point, and it becomes more of what it looks like. Pre-Constantine, the church is people that come together in homes. You know what they do? They koinonia together. That's fellowship. It doesn't just mean that you eat donuts. It's, it's we're going to take care of each other. You lost your job, we'll cover you. You're, you're, you're broken, we're here for you. Okay. They spent time in the word together. They celebrated the Lord's meal together. And guess what they did every single week? They went out to two places. They went out into the temple to try to win Jews to Jesus Christ. And they went out into the Agora, the open marketplace, to win Greeks. And I so miss that. I so miss that. That we've kind of treat, turned the church into a y'all come thing. Y'all come here. No, 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 no. That's never the church. Church is always what? Y'all go. That's why the Great Commission says, go make disciples. And... Um, that's what you have is when he's writing this scroll, he's going to send it out to all these home churches that you're going to hear uh, the letter being read in again and again and again and again and again until it makes its way throughout Asia. And what is it meant to do? To strengthen the church, to cause the church to say, yes, we're, we're under Domitian's reign and everything looks crazy bad, but guess what? It's not. Jesus Christ is in the midst of this persecution time. And he is working, and he is working on our behalf. Grace and peace to you. I'm giving you this letter. Under the grace of Jesus Christ, you need it. I want you to have his peace. In the midst of the stuff that's going on, I want you to have Him who hon hen erkamanas. So remember when Jesus, um, they ask him, who are you? And he says, I am. <coughs> committed, committed what the Jews consider to be blasphemy. I am. Okay. These are derivatives of that verb, I am. So what it means is the one who um, is being, who was being, and is coming or always will be being. Okay. So that's what he's saying is this, this word is coming to you from guess who? Great I am, from Jesus to you to strengthen you, to give you peace in the midst of the turmoil that's going on. Okay, So far so good? You guys following it all right? All right, we'll stop there. Let me pray us out. Lord God, thank you for this week ahead. And uh, put within us that spirit that John had. He would not.
back down not one step because he knew that to his very end, I must, I must tell people, you must know this. There is no salvation in any other name except the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, to you be praised. Amen.